0: Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 12. As you're doing that, I want to remind you, Easter is happening again this year. It's coming up next month. April 15th and 16th is when we'll celebrate it at our services. We'll have invitation cards to put in your hands, uh, I think next week. But I want you to even now and on an ongoing basis, begin to pray that God would use you to reach some people. And as you know names of friends and family members or neighbors, pray that God would soften their heart and that you'd be able to invite them, and that when they come, we'll be, we'll be sharing the gospel with them, but we want to see as many people as possible come to know Jesus. And so uh, how many of you guys are glad somebody told you, right? I'm glad somebody reached out to me. Do that for somebody else. We'll have more information about it in the next few weeks. Today, we are wrapping up a series called Words That Change Everything. Have you uh, learned a few things about the words you speak over the past few weeks? Are you more aware of the words that other people speak, right? When they come out of their mouth, you're catching some things like, oh, that's why your life is like this. You know, you always feel like, I'm so tired, because you're going around always saying, I'm so tired. (laughs) Things never work out for you because you think, man, nothing ever works out for me. Words are powerful, and words can change things. And so today, I want to talk about some words that will unlock the grace or the ability of God uh, when you speak these words. Today, I want to speak to you about words of repentance, words of repentance. Before I do, I want to tell you a story about a guy who had a dream, and it was a recurring dream three nights in a row, and he wasn't someone who normally had dreams, and these dreams were vivid, and he could remember every detail about them. And in this dream, he sees the throne room of heaven, and, and he, he, he hears all the sound of worship, and he sees all the sights you read about in the Bible, the colors, the, the angels about him, and, and the saints of God. And, and as, he, as he looks, he sees the opening into the very throne room of God, and he sees God sitting there on his throne. And when he looks, God makes eye contact with him. And God looks at him and says, come here. And so he starts to take a step towards God. But as soon as he does, he realizes, I'm a cat. I'm a cat. But I want to be in the presence of God. And how can I worship God if I'm just a cat? But he thinks, I know. I'm going to go up and I'm going to rub my back on his leg and show him all the affection and adoration that a cat can do because I just want to be in his presence. And so sure enough, God is up there on the throne and, and he's smiling at him. And then so he starts purring and he walks up and he goes around and he rubs his back against God's leg. And, and God looks at him and he smiles and he reaches out his hand to touch him. And the, the guy is so excited. He's thinking, God is going to touch me and I can't wait to be in the presence and just hear from God and be touched by God. And so God reaches his hand, his hand and, and puts it on him and he pets him. And he strokes them, but he starts from the back and goes all the way up to the neck. And he thinks, ah, that's uncomfortable. And then God reaches and does it again. He's like, ah, I don't like that. I'm expecting it to feel good, but, but God, what are you doing? It's just, I don't like what you're doing to me. And God does it a third time. And as soon as he's about to turn and say, God, why are you doing that? He wakes up. Well, man. He's troubled by this dream. He gets out his Bible, he starts studying like the hand of God. He starts looking at all his concordances and his Bible programs, trying to understand about the throne room of heaven. He's getting on Google and he's trying to understand why cat's hair grows this way. And he's just trying to figure all this out. No answer. Goes to bed that night. Sure enough, same dream. Throne room of heaven. God says, come. He's a cat. He rubs up against his leg just to to show him some love. God reaches down the hand, sure enough, from the tail all the way up to the head. Ah! He does it again. Oh! Just, I'm not liking it. Third time, oh! He turns to ask God why. Boom, wakes up. Man, he's troubled by this. He says, I'm going to spend the day praying and fasting and and supplication before the Lord. I'm going to call my friends and ask them if they have any insight. I mean, he's emailing Scott and saying, can you get some discernment on this? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Goes to bed that night. Finally, the third night, throne room of heaven. God says, come. I'm a cat, but I still want to be in his presence because I just, I'm invited. And and he goes up, and he says, I'm going to rub my leg my, against his leg. He rubs against his leg. God reaches down, smiles, starts from the back again to the front. Oh, oh. One more time, third time, puts his hand on his back, rubs from the tail to the head. And he's just thinking, I don't like it. I want to be in your presence, but I don't like what you're doing to me. But he, and he's just about to think, I'm going to wake up and not get my answer. But he doesn't. And God's looking at him, kind of like, go ahead and ask. So sure enough, he takes the opportunity to ask God, and he looks up at him, and he says, meow, 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 because remember, he's a cat. But fortunately, God speaks cat, so God's like, meow, meow, meow. (laughs) Fortunate for you, I have the gift of interpretation today. (laughs) He looked up at God and said, God, I just want to be in your presence. I want your hand on my life, but... But it's so uncomfortable every time you keep rubbing me from the back to the front. Why do you keep rubbing me from the back to the front? And then God looks at him and says, turn around. You see, we want God to adjust to us, but we need to adjust to God. We want God to change things so we can keep going the direction that we're going. But God's saying, you're not going to experience my grace and comfort and everything that my hand provides in the way I want it to until you turn around and turn around. And some of us, we keep trying to go to God, but it's not comfortable. We don't like the results. And God is inviting us in, but He says, turn around. That's what repentance is. In fact, repentance really, we think about repentance and, and we think, you're going this way, and then repentance means now I'm going this way. It's it's a change of direction. Well, that that's partially true, but really, repentance... What at the heart of it is? It's not just a change of actions, but repentance is really a change of mind. It's a, it's a change of mind, and and it's when some truth comes in that I have not embraced or surrendered to, even if you were aware of it before. But uh, you can be aware of truth but disagree with it. Like I know that, um, I know that that sticking my Finger in a light socket's not going to have positive results. But there may be something about, I just do it anyways, right? You think that's stupid. The truth is, you shouldn't do it. I might be aware of it, but I do it. You can think of examples that actually are real, realistic and re- apply to you. So, but it, it, repentance is when in my mind I come to grips with what God says. And I say, or in my heart, you know, how internally, and I say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. I'm going to change and bring, come into alignment with that. I'm embracing that. I'm surrendering your truth, which, by the way, is what God has been speaking to us all along is this truth. And, and, and then, as a result, we change our direction. The change of direction, the new life, the different life, you know what that's called? That's called the fruit of repentance. The repentance took place here before the Lord and uh, the fruit of repentance or the, the, the results of repentance, that's what you see when someone's going a different direction, repentance. I want to talk to you about three stories from the Bible about people who repented. Because oftentimes we think repentance only and always comes through a bold preaching of the Word and, and identifying you know, God in His holiness and you in and your sinfulness, and, and we've got to point out your sin. And and how many of you are, would say, yeah, that's happened to me and I did recognize it and I repented, right? That That's happened to me um, many times, by the way, but at least the first time for sure where I came into a place where I am not living in congruence. I'm not living in alignment with the truth of God. I know what God says, but I'm not living in agreement with that in my heart and in my actions and so forth. So therefore, I'm not truly surrendered to God. Um, and I was confronted, hey, Daniel, you need to make a change here. Okay, and I did. And, and that was when I was 17 years old. And it, it was a little bit like that. <laughs> the story in 2 Samuel is one of David. David was a man of God. I am going to tell you about three different people. The very first one's a man of God. He loved God with all his heart. He danced before the Lord. He worshipped God. He wanted the presence of God so bad that he brought the Ark of the Presence of God to his house. He was someone who was called by God as a man after God's own heart. This is a guy who is one of the heroes of the faith. If you were to identify the top five, you know, most adored people in the Bible. Uh, outside of Jesus, you'd have like Abraham, you'd have Moses, you'd have David. Like he, He's definitely in the top three there. In fact, the Bible even calls Jesus the son of David because he came from his line. He's, he's highly regarded by God and man. He's a man of God. But this man of God found himself in a very ungodly position. There was a time in his life where he should have been at war with all his people because he was the king and he should lead him out to battle, but he stayed home And by the way, sometimes when you're not where you should be, you end up doing things that you shouldn't. And here he is, and he experiences one of those those coincidences, those by chance encounters that I really think, man, that's the devil. He's up on his housetop, and he's walking around, and suddenly he sees some lady on top of her house bathing. Now, why she's taking a bath out on the top of the house, I don't know. I don't know. Like the plumbing in the house didn't work? I don't know. And David, instead of going like whoa, whoa, he goes whoa, whoa, and he says, "Who is that lady?" And sure enough, they bring bring her to his house, and he knows her in the biblical sense, and she's pregnant. <laughs> and then he finds out that she's pregnant, and he's like, "Oh, I gotta cover my tracks." And so then he says, Who, "Who's her husband?" And I think that's so funny. I'm like, David, did you not? Did you even get her name? Like, come on, man. You don't know any of these details? You just had her over? Well, that's what happened to the man of God. He finds out that her husband is Uriah. Uriah was one of the captains, one of his mighty men. He's named as one of his mighty men who was out at war, laying his life down, risking his life for David. And so he says, uh call Uriah from the battle line and have him come talk to me so he comes and asks him about the battle and he says okay okay hey go on see your wife tonight and uh then go back to war the next day hoping that he will fall into the embrace of his wife and then he'll be the you know the one blamed for having this kid like because otherwise the story is going to be very clear. She got pregnant, but he's been gone the whole time. But Uriah was an honorable guy, and he said, oh, it's not right for me to go uh, spend the night with my wife while m- my brothers are out there risking their life in battle. So he sp- sleeps on the ground outside the king's house. David hears about it. He says, oh, let's try it again. Let's get him drunk, and then he'll go home. Well, same thing happens. Doesn't go home. And so David says, what am I going to do? It's going to be obvious that uh, she's pregnant with my child, and, and you know I committed adultery. And so he says, I know what I'll do. I'll have him killed. You see how bad decisions get worse when we try to cover our tracks? It's like people who lie, and then they try to cover their lies, and pretty soon they forget which was, what was a lie or what lie they told. So, so David tells Joab, the commander of the army, he said, when the battle's really tough, uh, pull back so that Uriah is killed. And sure enough, that's what happens. David feels like the coast is clear. He's going on with his king business. He he takes uh, Bathsheba to be his wife. And, you know, he had like multiple wives. It's kind of a thing back then. And so uh, she's pregnant. She's she's way pregnant. David isn't saying nothing to nobody, especially to the Lord. But how many of you know that when you bring up and confess your sin to God, it's not the first time he ever heard about it, right? It's not the first time you ever heard about it. And so sure enough, David's trying to, he's thinking that he's getting off scot-free and that nothing, you know, no consequences. But then God sends a prophet to him. And the prophet is Nathan, who is sent in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, 1. It says, then he came to him and said, there are two men in a city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a lot of herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little lamb, which he bought and he nourished and he fed it at his table and he, he let it drink out of his own cup. And that little lamb was like a daughter to him. And then a traveler came to the rich man to stay the night, and the rich man wouldn't take from his own flocks. But instead, he went to this guy, and he took his one little ewe lamb, and he slaughtered it to feed this traveler. And David was incensed. He was angry at this, and he said, that man should surely die because of what he did. And then he's going to have to repay to this guy four times what he took from him. Isn't it interesting that here's David who took something precious from Bathsheba, her husband, her one and only husband, and took something precious from her husband at first, his one and only wife. When David had women, and he had access to women, he's the king, but yet he took from what belonged to someone else and committed adultery and then murder. And look at the words of Nathan the prophet when he responded in verse 7. He says to David, David you are the man. You are the man. You see, God sent David to bring this story about sheep because David had grown up as a shepherd. So God used a story that will capture his heart to bring to his attention the way he's been living and what he's done. And then when David is so angry about it and realizes the injustice and the wrongness of it, God points out, but David, really, I'm talking to you. And then listen to what he said. I anointed you. God is saying, I anointed you over Israel. I delivered you you from the hand of Saul. I gave you from your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Look at the heart of God. He loved David. He said, "'Why then have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, "'Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor.'" He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the Son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. God said, I'll do it openly. Listen to the words that David responded with. David said, well, let me tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say, but man, I was in a moment of weakness. He didn't say... Well, what was she doing bathing out in front of everybody? He didn't say, you know what? I'm a man just like everybody else, and I'm the king. He looks at him and he says, I've sinned against the Lord. You see, when you simply come into agreement with God and you respond, you got to take responsibility for who you are and what you've done and identify it not as weakness, not as failures, not as struggles, but sin. Because Jesus didn't die on the cross because of weakness, failure, struggle, temptation. He died because of sin. And that's what it is. And we just have to call it what it is. And he said, you got me. Now, we know he said much more beyond this when you read Psalm 51, by the way. You can look that up. But what I want to really highlight is what is God's response. The very next words, as soon as David said, I have sinned, put that back on the screen. The word of the Lord says this. He said, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die immediately, as soon as he confesses his sin, listen to the grace of God. Some people would say, well, doesn't he have to feel really bad about it and grovel for weeks and remind God how terrible he is? Doesn't he have to inflict himself? Doesn't he have to crawl on his hands and knees? Should he even show his face in church? So often when a man or woman of God falls now, we want to kick them out. We want to exclude them. We want to call them hypocrites. That person was a fake, a phony, a fraud. But you can't say that about David because David was a man after God's own heart and he committed adultery and killed a brother. (laughs) Come on now. I know some people who get kicked out of church because they wore makeup. (laughs) Some of these churches, you can get kicked out of for, you know, you, you, you bring the wrong thing to the bake sale. And here's... The man after God's own heart that committed adultery and killed somebody, and all he has to do is confess, and God forgives, that's a problem that the world has with Christianity. Do you mean to tell me that that Hitler could have, right before he died, said, oh God, I'm sorry, and meaning it from his heart, and God would have taken him to heaven? Well, see... they they underestimate the depth of their own sin and they misunderstand it. Because I'm going to tell you right now, yes. But even a man of God who's doing the best he can and living for God his whole life is no more worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven than Hitler. You got to understand this, the depth of our sin. And understand, even more importantly, though, the grace of our God. Because God looks at him and says, I put away your sin. There are consequences, and God laid them out. Sometimes the ball gets rolling, and God shields us from so much. But there are many things, though, that we do reap what we sow. And thank God for his grace. But here we have a man of God who really loved God, and he blew it big time. Big time. And when he spoke the words of repentance and confession, God received him and got him right back into alignment so that his hand, all of a sudden, the hand of God on him was not against him or hurtful, but it was comforting and gracious. Second person is Simon Peter in Luke chapter five. Maybe you you might know the story. Simon Peter, Jesus is out. He's preaching to a multitude of people and they're pressing about him. Crowding all over. So he looks and he sees a couple boats that are standing by the seashore, and the fishermen were off on their own. They're washing the nets because they'd been fishing all night long. And so he gets into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asks him to put out a little from the land. And then he began to teach the multitudes from the boat, and that's a lot of wisdom because if you're ever on the lake and you're talking, you can hear people on the boat, like on the other side of the lake just about, and their normal voices because the water amplifies. So Jesus is speaking there to the crowd. They can all hear, and he's talking to them. He's teaching them. And one of the primary messages that Jesus taught, by the way, was repent because the kingdom of God is here or at hand. And and that's how you enter into the kingdom of God. So he's preaching this message, and Simon Peter's like, okay, preacher, I'm sitting here in the boat with you. And then Jesus, when he's done teaching, verse 4 says, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night, and we've caught nothing Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down your net. By the way, Simon Peter was not necessarily a man of God, but he's not exactly a terrible guy either. He's probably what most of us are like, just normal people. He was a company man. He, he, he worked in the family business. He went to work every day. He wasn't hugely successful. We don't really have any record of him exactly doing well at fishing other, when Jesus, other than when Jesus helped him out. But this is what he did. He probably went to church, went to synagogue, normal life, knew who God was, believed in God. And Jesus got in his boat that day and said, launch out in the deep and let down your nets. And Peter says, okay, at your word, I'll let down the net one net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. He caught a boatload of fish. (laughs) In fact, he actually caught nets loads of fish, but he had only given half-hearted to the Lord. He was like, okay, God, I'll entertain you. I'm kind of, I'll kind of obey your word, but not with my whole heart. And he kind of gave him a half-hearted response, but God's intention was to give him nets full of fish. And, and the heart of God for this was, Peter, I just want to bless you. Thanks for giving to me and let me use your stuff, your boat. Now I'm going to overwhelm you with blessing and grace that you don't deserve. And so fish... By the multitude were trying to get in that net, and the net was breaking. They signaled to their partners, come on over. They put the fish in the boats because they don't want to lose any. Because by the way, this is not, oh man, we caught a bunch of fish. We're going to have a good barbecue. This is money. This is money. I'm a fisherman, commercial fisherman. And those are dollar bills or whatever they had You know, getting out of my net. So they put them all into the boat. Peter, though, He recognizes something miraculous just happened. You see, Peter had already met Jesus. He had known Jesus. He had interaction with Jesus. The chapter right before this, Jesus comes and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, which, by the way, is why some people believe that Peter denied Jesus later on. (laughs) Write it down, explain it to your friend later. (laughs) Nevertheless, he knew who Jesus was. But he didn't really know who Jesus was until the grace of God and the power of God showed up in his life. And not only did he recognize who Jesus was at that point, but in the presence of knowing who Jesus is, or in that time of knowing who Jesus is, he recognized who he himself was. And the Bible says he fell at Jesus' knees. Why didn't he fall at his feet? Because the boat was full of fish at least knee deep there. And so there's an abundance of provision, and he falls at his knees and he says, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. There was no, Peter, you've done this, this, and this wrong. It was simply that the goodness and grace of God showed up in power in his life. God did something for him that he didn't deserve. And the power of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God caused him to repent. And the Bible tells us that it's the kindness or goodness of the Lord that brings us to repentance. It's not just the judgment and the fiery fear of God, which works with some people at the right time. But it's the goodness and kindness of God. And Peter recognized, I don't deserve this. And now all of a sudden, though I've known you, now I truly know who you are. And at this point, I'm really prepared to admit who I am and my need for you. And for some of you, maybe that's what God wants to do in your life, to pour out his power, display his power and grace. But all of us, when he does it, the proper response is, I'm overwhelmed by who you are, God. And Lord, I I want less of me. I want more of you. I I don't want my old life. I want the life you have for me. Now listen to what happens though in the story when we see repentance. So they signal to their partners. The partners came over. They all saw the catch and they were amazed by it. So they bring that. Uh, they start bringing that back to shore. They're amazed by it. And Jesus, by the way, he, he sits there and he says, "Don't be afraid. For now on, you'll catch men." And some of you single ladies might think that's a word from the Lord for me. <laughs> Woo! I'm gonna catch me some men what? Who just said that? I'll take it. It's a word of the Lord for you right there. Huh? But the, in the context, let's get to the context. He's talking to Peter and he said, when it comes to my heart for evangelism and reaching out, I don't want you to throw in a line. I want you to throw in nets. Because when I see people coming into the kingdom, I see them coming by the boatload. And when I send out my word, that's the kind of effect that my power at work in you will have. But if we give a half-hearted response to the Lord and we only invite a couple people, or maybe I invited someone last year, God's saying, that's not what I have in mind. I want, when, when I said, hey, let's all, invite, let's all invite at least 10 people. Can you imagine if 10 of the people we invited come to church? What's going to happen? Our nets are going to break. We're running out of toilet paper. We're running out of coffee. We're running out of seats, right? Standing room only. It's hot. It stinks in here. What's happening? Boatloads of evangelism, which is the picture God wants to get across there as well. But here's something really interesting. They get back to shore. Now, remember, this is the biggest catch they've ever caught in their life. It's a miraculous catch. You know what that means to the fishermen? We're rich. But look at what they do. The very next verse in verse 11 says, when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all, and they followed him. They didn't sit there and say, thanks, Jesus, let's go fishing tomorrow. They looked at all that provision, and they looked at him, the provider, and they said, I'm going with you. And they forsook everything. And they said, man, I've cast in my net. I should have done my nets. But really, I'm going to give up my boat too now because I'm going to go with you. And from that day on, they never lacked. They never had to go without. Why is that? Because they were tapped into the source. They're out in the desert and there were over 5,000 people. There's five loaves and two fish. And yet Jesus fed them all. Why is that? Because he's our source. And they recognize that after that time of repentance, notice Jesus didn't say, oh, you want me to depart? No, he said, you just turned around. And now I can keep doing this in your life. Tell the person next to you you need to turn around. Last story, Zacchaeus, chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a a wee little man was he. If you grew up in kids' church, you know that song. Here's the story. Jesus, the man of uh, of the hour, the prophet, the teacher, the miracle worker, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God, the son of man. He's coming through town and people know about it. And so you can imagine that all the, the church folk, they get ready and, and they think, maybe I can just get his attention. And so some people are preparing their homes because they know he'll, he'll need a place to stay. And they, they just want to see him do some things and hear him because Man, this is Jesus, the one everybody's talking about. And so he's going through Jericho, and behold, there's a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. That's important. David was a man of God. Simon, he was just a normal business guy. Zacchaeus, he's the scum of the earth. He's a tax collector. I mean, we don't even like tax collectors today, but back in their day, they were like the dirt under your feet because a tax collector, to be identified as a tax collector, you're a Jewish person. Who turned against your people to side with the Romans who were the occupying nation who enslaved your people and they they uh, would take taxes from the Jewish people. And so here you are a Jew going and collecting taxes from Jewish people to give to the Romans. That's bad enough. But here's how it would work: the tax collectors would come up and, you know, here's James and say, Well, James owes 50 bucks or, or shekels or whatever. You owe 50 bucks, but I'm gonna tell you you owe a hundred dollars. So, hey, you got to pay up 100 bucks because whatever they would collect in addition, they would keep for themselves. And so they were ripping their own people off. And if James said, man, I'm not going to pay you. You're ripping me off. He'd just go tell the Romans. The Romans would come carry him away to prison, carry his family away, kill him, do whatever they wanted. So you had to pay off, pay up. And you would have despised Zacchaeus because he's a dirty, rotten criminal turned on his own people, despised, no one like Zacchaeus. And not only was he bad, but he was really good at being bad because the Bible says he was the chief tax collector and he was very rich. But Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And he hears about Jesus coming and he sought to see him, but he couldn't because of the crowd. So he's running up and jumping like, can't see him, can't see Jesus. And no one's letting him in because no one wants to give... Zacchaeus any help they hate him get out of here get out of here so Zacchaeus goes and he runs ahead and he climbs up a sycamore tree with his little arms gets up there a sycamore tree so that he can see him because Jesus was going to pass that way and when Jesus came to the place he looked up and he saw him and then he spoke to him and he said Zacchaeus make haste and come down for today I must stay at your house what just happens? All these people, man, we got church leaders there. We got rabbis and, and priests and ministers and Pharisees and people who have lived right and prepared a place for them. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and says, I want to come to your house. And listen to what, how Zacchaeus responded, or what, what he did. It said, so he made haste, came down the tree. And he received him joyfully. Do you know there's people out there who have been given up on who who we would think there's no hope, that they're so far from God or they don't even care about God, there's no interest, or God doesn't even care about them, that if they would simply be in the presence of Jesus, that they would receive him joyfully? Oftentimes we think, I don't want to say anything to that person. Because what are they going to say? They're going to totally get in my face or whatever. You know, there's so many people who are the lowest of the low in man's eyes. And Jesus is sitting there saying, but I want to spend time with you. And they would receive him joyfully. That's why it's so important when we come together, by the way, and we say, let's worship the Lord together. We're welcoming the presence of God. And the presence of the Lord is here, not just for us, but because there's somebody who God is saying, I need to be at your house. And when they experience the presence of the Lord, they say, I'll receive you joyfully. So look what happens, though, because we don't see the repentance take place yet. Verse 7 says, when they, you know who they are, those people who say those things, when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Can you imagine that? Jesus goes to hang out with a sinner, Sounds like my story. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. We have the story of Zacchaeus... Repenting, and he says, I'm turning, and if I've stolen, I'm giving it back, I'm restoring. What we don't have is a message that Jesus preached saying, Zacchaeus, you're a tax collector, you're a bad person, you need to repent. We don't have that, and I don't think that it happened. I think that here's an example of another way that God brought this person to repentance. You know what he did? He gave Zacchaeus dignity and honor. Everyone wanted Jesus to come to their house, but only one person that day was honored by the Lord. And that caused this guy who had no dignity and was dishonored and despised by everyone to realize he thinks something special of me. He wants to be with me. The son of God wants to come into my life. Nobody wants to be with me. I'm rich, I have all this stuff, and nobody wants to come to my house. He's so empty on the inside, but suddenly he got an alignment, and the hand of God touched him the right way. And he said, oh, I can't go back to that old life. I don't want anything to do with it. Jesus, you came to my home. You showed me who I really am. You gave me purpose. You gave me a new identity. (laughs) I'll never be the same. There are many ways in which God can bring someone to repentance. Direct confrontation. His goodness and grace and blessing and power. Honor and dignity. It's how the Holy Spirit leads It's how the Holy Spirit leads. And you're in a place in your life today where God's saying, turn around. You might be like thinking, well, I'm a man or woman of God already. But is there there anything that is out of alignment? Or maybe you're at a place in your life where God's saying, I want to turn you around, but the way I want to do it, I just want to bless you and show my power in your life. I say, Lord, I'll receive that. Or maybe it's, God is saying, I want to remove that shame from you. I want to give you dignity. I want to give you value. I want to honor you. The result that God is after is the same. I want you to turn to me. Because God's not going to turn around for you. But he'll love you enough to give you the ability to turn around for him. He's already died on the cross. He's already paid the ultimate price. He just says, turn around. Look to me today, I want to respond to the Lord. And I'm praying that there's a spirit of repentance, a spirit of repentance, that we would recognize who he is, and we recognize who we are, and that we would respond appropriately to the Lord and let God just do whatever he wants